You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we come now to your word with the confident expectation that you are able to use it to sanctify us and equip us, to encourage us, to bring men and women to repentance and to faith. And so we ask that you would do that today, that our hearts would be united and encouraged together, and that you would strengthen us in the faith and be pleased to draw men and women to yourself. Encourage us now and guide our time here in study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in recent weeks we have been looking at uh, the book of Jonah. We started that a few weeks back before we left to go to Mexico for a Sunday, and our minds are kind of on the subject of Jonah. Today we're going to leave the book of Jonah, but we're not going to leave the subject of Jonah. So our minds are kind of on Jonah, and today is Resurrection Sunday, so our minds are on resurrection issues, and so I thought a good way to sort of bring those two together would be to talk about the prophecy of the resurrection that Jesus gave where he made reference to the sign of the prophet Jonah. So that's what we're going to do today from Matthew chapter 12. It's probably a familiar passage to you, particularly the words, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah, for just as Jonah was in the heart of the earth, three days and three, or sorry, in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now that sign and that discussion that Jesus has about the, the, the sign of the prophet Jonah is given in three different passages in the Gospels. It's here in Matthew 12. It's also in Matthew chapter 16 on a different occasion. And then in the Gospel of Luke, there is a parallel passage with Matthew 12 where Luke records this discussion that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 12, this discussion with the Pharisees. So today we're going to ask ourselves, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? And what can we learn not only about Jonah, but also about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications from this passage in Matthew chapter 12? So that's what we're looking at this morning. So your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 12. And we do not have the benefit of having gone through the book of Matthew verse by verse as is our custom. So we're doing something that's sort of out of the ordinary for us as a church. We're sort of jumping into the middle of a book, into the middle of a chapter, and really into the middle of a discussion that Jesus is having. And we don't have the benefit of having really sort of absorbed the context through a series of messages. So here's what I want to do. I want to give to you the whole context because the importance of context, and listen, particularly in Matthew 12, cannot be overstated. You will not feel the import or the impact or see the implications of what Jesus is saying in verses 38 to 42 unless you understand what is going on. Because Matthew chapter 12 and the parallel passage in Luke chapter 11 highlights a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. It highlights a turning point in his ministry, a turning point in his life, and a series of events in this context which radically altered the course of history, at least from the human perspective, not from the divine. So let me give you the context of it. It actually goes all the way back to chapter 11. So flip back a page or two in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. And we could go back a little bit further, but we're not going to. We're just going to sort of pick it up at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11. Jesus gave, finished giving instruction to his twelve disciples in verse one, and he departed there to teach and preach in the cities. Now, verse two, John the Baptist, who was in prison, sent some of his disciples to Jesus with the question, Are you the coming one, the expected one, or should we be waiting for someone else? 
Now, John the Baptist had a series of events, one of which was his imprisonment, that sort of cast a shadow of doubt, as it were, over his confidence in Jesus. And really, knowing the truth in his heart, John the Baptist just wanted to be reaffirmed in what he had been proclaiming for a long time, and that was that this Jesus was the long-expected Messiah, was the Son of David, was the Christ, and so he sent some of his disciples to Jesus. And look what Jesus gives them for an answer. Verse 4. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And then Jesus goes on to describe John the Baptist and his ministry there at the beginning of chapter 11 all the way down through the end of verse 19 in order to show that he was the Christ. Now notice what the question that John the Baptist had was. Are you the Christ, the expected one? That has to do with the identity of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, do you want evidence of who I am? All you have to do is look at what I have done. The dead are raised, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, and then look at my teachings. The poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, Jesus says, the evidence of my identity rests in what I have done and what I have said. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have said, and you can only come to one conclusion, and that is that I am who I say that I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of David. I am the expected one. There is none to come after me. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Look what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And by this time, Tyre and Sidon had both been destroyed in keeping with Old Testament prophecies for their sins. The Old Testament prophets had prophesied against Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus says, Woe to these cities in whom I have ministered and in in which cities I have performed miracles, because if those signs had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Verse 22, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And I want you to notice the themes. That of repentance, that of Jesus' signs, and why they should have His signs should have caused repentance in the hearts of the people. And that of judgment. Those are the themes. The identity of Jesus His miracles, judgment, and repentance. Those are all the themes that are sort of in this whole chapter of chapter 12. And Jesus says, woe are these cities in whom these miracles that I have done have been done because they're going to be destroyed. They have not repented and they had not turned. And imagine this. Jesus said, if Sodom had seen what Bethsaida had seen, Sodom would have remained to this day. And the implication is they would have repented. And they wouldn't have faced the judgment that they did. And immediately after his pronouncement of judgment for their unrepentantness over his signs and what he had done, Jesus says in verse 25, he gives, actually you can skip down to verse 28, he offers this invitation, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is an invitation to them to repent and to turn to him and to trust him and to embrace him as Christ and Messiah and their king. They wouldn't do it. So then you get to verse chapter 12, and the issue of the Sabbath comes up. And Jesus is doing something on the Sabbath that sort of got the ire up of the Pharisees and the scribes who were always watching him and observing him and trying to find something that they could uh, find fault with. 
the disciples are walking through the fields and they're plucking the head of grain and eating them. And so this controversy comes up over their man-made religion and their man-made requirements for the Sabbath. And, and Jesus sort of answers their, their objection. And then he says down in verse 7, sorry, verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now look who he's claiming to be. He is saying, look, I am the creator of the Sabbath. I'm the God of the Sabbath. I'm the ruler of the Sabbath. I, because I am God, can do anything on the Sabbath that I choose to do or want to do. This really got in the, in the Pharisees' throat. They had a hard time swallowing this. So then Jesus does something on the Sabbath intentionally to make them mad as an object lesson to them. He heals somebody on the Sabbath. Beginning in verse 9, he departed from there and went into the synagogue. And a man whose hand was withered was there. And Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. Now Jesus didn't forget that it was the Sabbath. He could have said, look, come back tomorrow and I'll heal you tomorrow in order not to cause a stumbling block to the Pharisees and the scribes who are watching me and they're all hung up over the Sabbath. So if you just come back tomorrow in 24 hours, I can heal you. But Jesus intentionally does something on the Sabbath to make them mad. He intentionally does something to get their ire up. He healed the man with the withered hand as an object lesson to them that He was Lord of the Sabbath and He could do anything He wanted on the Sabbath. They didn't like this. Now how do I know that they were mad? Look at verse 14. After that He got done healing them, the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him as to how they might destroy Him. We're going to kill Him. And they begin to plot their murder of Jesus Christ because He did something on the Sabbath that infuriated them. Jesus, aware of this in verse 15, withdrew and many people followed them and He healed them all. But He did it privately, it says. He healed them and then He told them, don't go out and just keep it quiet. He was healing them privately, not publicly, in order to keep it sort of behind the scenes. And He makes a concession, as it were, still healing people. He has demonstrated who He is. He has shown who He is. He has given all the proof that is necessary. He doesn't need to do anything more publicly for that sake. But He still wanted to heal the people, so He did. Verse 22, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and He healed him. Demon-possessed, blind, and mute. This is not one miracle. This is three, all wrapped up into one person. And Jesus healed them. Verse 23 says, All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man can't be the son of David, can he? Now who gets it? The crowds are getting it. This man's the son of David, isn't he? And the crowds begin to catch on. The crowds, the populace, the multitudes have seen enough, they have heard enough, and they begin to come to the right conclusion. This man is the long-promised son of David. This is the prophet of the Old Testament. This is the one who would come, the branch and the root of David, the offspring of David, who would sit on David's throne. This is our Messiah. This is our King. This is the Anointed One. He is the long-promised, long-expected descendant of David who will set the nation free and deliver us from our sin and establish the kingdom. They've got that. The crowds understand that. But the Pharisees don't want the crowds to understand that. So the Pharisees said when they heard this, verse 24, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So then they said, the power and the things that he does, the miracles that he performs, he does by the power of Satan. And this brings up Jesus' discussion on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is another subject for another day, but sufficient today to say that the Pharisees knew who he was. They were not mistaken. They knew who he was. And intentionally they attributed his power, his miracles, and his works to demons, to Satan. Jesus answered that 
we get down to chapter 12, verse 34, and then Jesus says, says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. The Pharisees, because of what they had done and what they had say, said, it was evident the condition of their heart. That's what verse 34 is about. You, you brood of snakes, how can you being evil speak what is good? And they couldn't. Jesus says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure, that is, out of a good heart, what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure, that is, his evil heart, what is evil. But I tell you, addressing the Pharisees, every careless word you utter, you will give an account thereof on the day of judgment. Verse 37, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What had they said? They had said to Jesus, you perform your signs in the power of the devil. So John the Baptist asked the question, are you the long-expected one? And Jesus said, look at my words and look at my works. That is proof enough. And then he did all of these works. He healed the sick. He healed the lame. He raised the dead. He healed the blind. He preached the gospel. All of the evidence that was necessary. And it culminated with the Pharisees who said, all that you do, you do in the power of the devil, in the power of Satan, and you are demon-possessed yourself. And Jesus said, by your words you will be condemned. You have blasphemed the Spirit of God. You have attributed my work and my words to the devil. And for that you will not be forgiven. And Jesus said, all the words that you have spoken concerning me, you have spoken out of an evil, wicked heart. Now that brings us to the culmination of all of this in verse 38, 39, 40, all the way to 42. And that is the culmination of this theme of repentance and judgment, His signs and His identity. And so the Pharisees come to him in verse 38, and we're going to notice two things. Their request for a sign, and second, Jesus' refusal to give them the sign that they requested. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. I want you to notice who the players are in this little dialogue that Jesus is about to engage in. The players are the same ones that he's been dealing with since the beginning of chapter 11. That is the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes were the lawyers. The Pharisees were the self-righteous priests and religious leaders and, and the men who sort of set themselves up as rulers over the nation of Israel. They were trusting in all of their own righteousness and their own good deeds. They were Jesus' main opponents, His arch enemies, so to speak. All the way through the Gospels, they are hounding His steps, looking for opportunities to undermine Him and to blaspheme Him. They're always looking for an opportunity to kill Him, to get rid of Him, to discredit Him. And so now they come to Him and they offer Him a challenge that is dripping with sarcasm and dripping with condescension, and dripping with discontent. And they say to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now why do I say that that is dripping with sarcasm? Because the Pharisees did not consider anybody who was not one of them worthy to teach them. So their referring to Jesus as a teacher was a sarcastic, condescending address. And they say to Jesus, it is almost as if they could have said it in this way. You call yourself a teacher? Look, teacher, you're a teacher from God. You claim to be a teacher from God. You claim to be one who has the authority and the ability and the insight to teach others. Why don't you then demonstrate to us that you have the authority to be a teacher? Show us a sign. Do something for us. Now, it wasn't just any sign that they were asking for. If you were to flip over to Luke chapter 11, you would see that Luke records their request, and he says they asked of him a sign from heaven. They were asking a sign from heaven. Now, had they already seen signs? The man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, right? The demon-possessed, mute, uh, lame men, all of those men, they had seen all of those signs. They had seen all that Jesus had done. 
But this sign that they're asking for is not just do us another miracle. Not just heal another blind person. They asked for him a sign from heaven. And the implication seems to be something extraordinary. Show us a big sign. Why don't you rearrange a constellation? Why don't you make the sun stand still? Why don't you make the moon turn to blood or race across the sky? Show us something in the heavens. Show us a sign from the heavens. They're asking for a massive sign of a grand scale. They had seen all of the other signs. And this is a request for a different type of sign. A sign from the heavens. That's what they're asking for. Now notice what they want. They want a sign of their own request at their own time of their own desire. They're asking for proof on their terms. They're saying to Jesus, we want you to perform for us a sign and here is the type of sign we would like you to do. And we would like you to do it now. That's their request. Now look at verse 29 and look at Jesus' refusal to give them that request. But He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Does Jesus give in to their request? He said, I'm not going to give you a sign. What you want me to do is perform some miraculous heavenly sign, some phenomenal, ultra-supernatural, staggering demonstration of my power. Now I ask you this question, could Jesus have done that? He could have, couldn't he? He could have rearranged the constellation. He could have made the sun stand still. He could have made the moon race across the sky. He could have made the day turn to night or the night turn to day or the moon turn to blood or the sun turn blue or purple or any shade of gray. He could have done all of those things. It was within His power, but it wasn't within His purpose. Because the Pharisees are not asking for a sign in order that they might repent. They have presented to Jesus these two options. Do something supernatural for us And if you do it, then it would demonstrate to us that you are who you say you are. But if you refuse to do it, then it should be evidence to the crowds that you're nothing more than a trickster. Nothing more than a charlatan. Doing nothing more than parlor tricks with these people. And we see these type of parlor tricks going on today. Where people come up on stage and they crawl out of their uh, wheelchair and they perform these quote-unquote miracles and quote-unquote healings. That's the type of stuff that they thought Jesus was doing. And they're simply asking for a demonstration from Him. And it gives Jesus two options. Either I bend to their will to demonstrate to them that I am who I am. And if I don't, then they'll use it as proof to the crowds, the multitudes, that I'm not who I say that I am. So it's a no-win situation for Jesus, so to speak. But Jesus knows. He doesn't bend to their request. He doesn't bend to their demands. He doesn't grant them what they're asking for. Instead, He reveals to them the condition of their heart. And He says, I'm not going to give you a sign. I refuse to give you a sign. You want a Messiah on your terms who will perform your tricks and do your bidding at your time. And Jesus was not going to grant that. He was presenting Himself to them on His terms. And He was saying, you must come and you must bow the knee and you must repent or you will be judged. And I'm not going to perform parlor tricks for you. I'm not going to give you any sign. At least not the sign that they were asking at the time that they were demanding. But he does say, I will give you one sign, and it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. But in saying that, he reveals to them the hardness and the wickedness of their own hearts. An evil, wicked, and rebellious generation seeks after a sign. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews sought for a sign, and the Greeks wanted wisdom, and I gave them neither. 
I didn't perform signs for the Jews. Instead, I preached the cross, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and is foolishness to the Greeks. But the cross is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus does the same thing here. You're asking for a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do because I'm not going to bend my will to overcome your rebellious hard heart. Their wicked and rebellious heart was asking for a sign. And listen, that is the heart of unbelief. The heart of unbelief is a heart that demands proof. The heart that says, you show me proof and then I will believe. That is not a heart that is honestly seeking for the truth. That is a heart that is seeking for a justification for its wickedness and its disobedience. Now had Jesus performed some sign, would the Pharisees then have just fallen on their knees and repented and said, you are the long-awaited Messiah? Would they have done that? What would they have done? They would have said, you do that by the power of Satan. Just like healing the sick, just like raising the dead, just like everything else you do, you do that by the power of the prince of the power of the air. He's the one behind your ability to do that. They wouldn't have repented. And Jesus knew they wouldn't repent it because their heart was hard and wicked. I think it was Bertrand Russell, the famous skeptic, who wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he said in that, and he used to say publicly, if, I, if there is a God and if I ever stand before God, my first question to him is, why didn't you give us more proof? Really? I'll be honest with you, I want to be there on that day because Bertrand Russell is not going to say that to the Lord. That is the point of Matthew chapter 12. All of the proof you need has been given. I'm not going to give you any more proof. And it is only a wicked, rebellious, adulterous heart that says in it, I want more proof. I want God to show Himself to me. If God is there, then He should cure my cancer. He should do this. I want Him to perform a trick. Give me some proof. And Jesus' point is, all the proof you need for belief has been given to you. And you will be without excuse on Judgment Day. I'm not going to give you any signs. He would not throw before these swines any more pearls for them to stumble under and trip over and trample into the ground with their rebellious, wicked, hardened hearts. He wasn't going to do it. He was not going to bow His will and His knee to perform parlor tricks for these rebellious Pharisees who would not repent no matter how much proof was given. And this is the truth with the skeptic. No matter how much proof you lay out on the table, they will always say it's not enough. It's not sufficient. There's a book published recently by, written by Ray Comfort. And the title of the book is You Can Lead an Atheist to Evidence, But You Can't Make Him Think. <laughs> now, I think that is great. That's a great title for a book. And it's all about atheism, and that's true. You can lead an atheist to evidence, but you can't make him think. Because no amount of proof is sufficient for somebody who is seeking proof and refuses to bow the knee no matter how much proof, only so they can justify their own wicked, sinful unbelief. It is because they love their sin that they will not repent. Men love darkness, not light. And no matter how much light you pour onto their conscience, they will continue to harden their hearts because they will not repent. So Jesus doesn't bow his knee and he doesn't grant it to him. And he says, I'm not going to give you any sign, but I will give you, I'm not going to give you your sign, but I'm going to give you a sign on my terms. And that is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then Jesus explains what that is. And he says to them in verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Now this is the heart of what the sign is. The sign that Jesus was going to offer was His own resurrection. And He is drawing an intentional parallel between Jonah and Himself. And He is saying just as... And it's not everything in the account of Jonah or the book of Jonah which is intended to be a parallel. But just Jonah's time in the belly of the fish and his regurgitation, his vomiting up onto the soil on dry land was intended to be a picture, a portrayal, a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection. And just as Jonah appeared miraculously after three days and his time in the belly of fish was nothing, nothing other than a miracle, a miracle of deliverance and a miracle of preservation, just as Jonah appeared as a result of a miracle after three days, so I will come forth out of the heart of the earth after three days. Now, the Pharisees, do you think they understood what he was talking about? They didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Jesus is intentionally using mysterious language, just like he did in John chapter 2 when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it took us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But then John says, Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body, and after he was raised from the dead, then the disciples remembered it, then they understood it, and then they believed it. He's doing the same thing here. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the Pharisees would have been saying to themselves, whoa, whoa, what does that mean? Are you going to go into a cave and come out after three days? Are you going to go into a tomb and come out after three days? Are you going to dig yourself a hole and crawl into it and come out after? What do you mean by this? They wouldn't have understood. They wouldn't have had a clue what he was talking about. The disciples wouldn't have understood what he was talking about. But Jesus draws the parallel between Jonah and himself. Now I want to stop for a second because we're studying Jonah. And I want to give to you a couple of the, a couple items of significance as far as our, the connection to the book of Jonah. The first one is this, and I mentioned this in the introduction to the book of Jonah when we when I introduced the book. Jesus' reference to Jonah in the three days and the three nights and the belly of the earth and, and the repentance of Nineveh, Jesus treats the book of Jonah as actual literal history, not allegory, not metaphor, not some spiritual interpretation. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not any of that. It's not a story told with a big spiritual significance. It's a historical text. And everything that happened in the book of Jonah happened just as it was written without any allegory or mythical interpretations whatsoever. And if it didn't, then Jesus referencing Jonah demonstrates that Jesus was either misled and mistaken or he was intentionally deceptive, neither of which is acceptable to me, nor should it be to anybody who's a genuine believer in Christ. So that means it's an honest, literal history. The second significant thing for our study with Jonah is the significance of this of, of Jonah as a what we call a prophetic type. Some of you are familiar with the, the idea of typology and types. A type basically is a divinely inspired foreshadowing in the Old Testament of a future fulfillment, of a future reality. There are types given to us in the New Testament. Melchizedek is a type of Christ in some respects. The Old Testament tabernacle was a type of something that was to come. The priesthood, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the feasts, all of those things the book of Hebrews says were divine foreshadowings, divinely inspired foreshadowings of greater fulfillment. The tabernacle and the sacrifice and the high priest were all foreshadowings of Jesus Christ dwelling with us, the sacrifice on the cross, and His ministry as a high priest. Now we ask the question, well, what determines what's a type and what's not a type? How do I know if something in the Old Testament is a type? It's really simple. If the New Testament says this in the Old Testament is a type, then it's a type. And if the New Testament doesn't say that this in the Old Testament is a type, then it's not a type. And to say that it's a type means you're going beyond what is written, typically speaking. Everybody understand that? Probably not, but you can get the tape and listen to it again and we'll move on. 
So this is a prophetic type. Now, there are two types of prophecy in the Old Testament. One, there was prophetic proclamation, where the prophet would say, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me, and here is what God says. The other type of prophecy in the Old Testament was this predictive prophecy, this prophetic typology, where you see in the Old Testament things which are fulfilled in the New Testament and lived out. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, was intended by God to be, and Jesus says it is, a demonstration or a foreshadowing of his own resurrection. So that is its significance for us. Now let's deal with this question of three days and three nights. Because people get hung up on this, don't they? Three days and three nights. Because we can all add, can't we? And we celebrate Good Friday because Jesus was crucified on a Friday and probably buried just before sundown. And people get hung up over, well, they say it's three days and three nights, but it's actually only part of Friday. And if you've been a Christian longer than ten minutes, you've had to think this one through. It's only part of Friday and then Friday night, so that's one day and, and one night. And then you have all day Saturday, which is two days. And you have Saturday night, which is uh, two nights. Now, hold on. How did, did that wrong? Because I shouldn't have two and two here together. Okay, you had Friday. You had part of Friday. You had Friday night. Let's do it this way. Night's on, the, on my right, your left. You had Friday night. Then you had all day Saturday. Then you had Saturday night and part of a day Sunday. You really don't have two full days on Friday and Saturday, do you? But you do have two full nights, not three full nights. And you do have one full day, not three full days, and only two partial days. And so people use this skeptic's point to this, and they say, well, see, he wasn't in the belly of the fish. Jesus was lying, or he got it wrong, or the New Testament authors, they didn't see this contradiction. Because if Matthew was such an idiot, he could write this, and then write later on a few chapters that Jesus was in the, in the tomb from Friday to Sunday, and he didn't somehow see the contradiction. How do we reconcile that? What do we do with that? It's really not as difficult as people make it out to be. Some people go through all of these mental interpretive gymnastics to try and get Jesus crucified on a Thursday or a Wednesday, and they say, well, if you take the Gregorian calendar and you subtract the Aztec calendar, you multiply by the Incan calendar and you subtract the day in Joshua, and then you come up with an algorithm of three because that's the number of the Trinity, and we got a lost day here in this calendar, and, and uh, shazam, Jesus is crucified on a Wednesday. And it all works out three days and three nights. It's really much more simple than that. Don't get into all of that baloney. Here it is. Let me give you an illustration or example, and one rather recent for us. I just returned yesterday from a trip that we went to Mexico. We were gone for nine days. And we left on April 3rd. That's the 3rd, the 4th, the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, the 9th, the 10th, and the 11th. It was a nine-day trip. Now, if I wanted to be as precise as an atomic clock, we actually left at 10 a.m. on the 3rd, so it was only part of a day. It wasn't actually a whole day and a whole night. And we got home yesterday morning. We flew in yesterday at 10 a.m. Truth be told, if you wanted to be accurate, it was eight 24-hour days between the 3rd and the 11th. But it is not inaccurate, nor is it a lie, nor is it a misrepresentation for me to say that it was a nine-day trip, even though it was only eight 24-hour periods. But it was eight 24-hour periods that overlapped on nine different days. So was it an eight-hour day uh, trip, an eight-day trip, or a nine-day trip? It was a nine-day trip, and we understand that because we speak that way all the time. And the Jews did as well, but they were even looser with their reckoning of time. If it was even part of a day, they would refer to it as a day. You say, but that was only a couple hours in the evening, a whole day. It was a whole day and a whole night. Sometimes they would use a day and a night to refer to a period of time, maybe three or four hours, that took place in the afternoon and into the evening. It was just a day and a night. So if it took place on part of a Friday, they reckoned that as a day and a night. Saturday, day and a night. Part of Sunday, day and a night. Three days, three nights. It didn't serve any problem at all for the Jews. That's how they talked about time. That's how they reckoned time. And that's what Jesus is using here. Just an idiom. Just a figure of speech. And no Jew reading this would have said, oh, you were lying. They would have said, yep, Friday to Sunday, three days, three nights. That's how they talked. That's the figure of speech. Now, what are the implications of 
the prophet, sign of the prophet Jonah. Look at verse 41. This is where it gets messy. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation in, jud- in judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Speaking of Jonah, since we're talking about Jonah and I'm giving you the sign of the prophet Jonah, here's the implications of my resurrection. Jesus said, you've asked me for a sign, but I'm not going to give you a sign, at least not the sign that you want and that you're demanding. I'm going to give you my sign, and I'm going to give you my sign at my time on my terms, and here it is. I'm going to raise from the dead. Now, he says this in a mysterious, sort of sort of uh, uh, shrouded way in order to hide the truth from them and in order to couch it in language that they wouldn't yet understand. But he says to them, when this happens... There's going to be certain implications, and one of the implications is that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and they will condemn it. Because the men of Nineveh repented with far less light than you Pharisees have had. Nineveh never had the Old Testament prophets. Nineveh never had the law of God. Nineveh never had the spokesman from God. The Elijahs and the Elishas and the Isaiahs and the Jonahs and the Moseses and the Joshuas and the Samuels. They never had any of those. They didn't have the written Word of God. What did they have? They had their idols. They had their wickedness. They had their fornication. They had their rebellion. They had their hard hearts. And they had one man who showed up and said one thing. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they repented. How much light were the men of Nineveh given? Just a little bit. Now how much light were the Pharisees given? They had all the prophets. They had all the Word of God. They had the law. They had all of the spokesmen of God throughout their whole history. And on top of that, they had Jonah's God in human flesh, in their midst, performing signs on a scale that nobody had ever done, literally banishing demonic possession and illness from the land of Palestine. And they would not repent. And Jesus said, because of your hard heart and because of your rebellion, I've given you all the proof that I need to give you. I don't need to turn the sun to blood. I don't need to make the moon run across the sky. I don't need to rearrange a constellation. Everything you need to repent has been given to you. And with all of that light, they would not turn to the God of Jonah. And Jesus said on Judgment Day, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up against you and bear judgment against you. On Judgment Day, the men of Nineveh will stand up and bear testimony against Bertrand Russell and say, we had far less light from you than you did. We had far less light than you had. You had the Old Testament. You had the New Testament. You had the resurrection. You had the Word of God. You had the full 66 books. You understood more than we ever understood. And Bertrand Russell can say, I didn't have enough proof. And the men of Nineveh will say, we got by on much less light than you. And we turned at the preaching of one man. And yet you have heard the words of a man greater than Jonah, and you refuse to repent. That's the implication, friends. That's the implication of the resurrection. There's a judgment to come. And why is there a judgment to come? There is a judgment to come because God is a just judge. He is a righteous judge. And He is a good judge. And He must punish lawbreakers. That's you and I. We have sinned. We like sheep have gone astray. We have lied. We have stolen. We have blasphemed His name. We have rebelled against Him with our wicked and our hard hearts. And if you have not repented, friends, you have not repented maybe because you're demanding more proof. You don't need any more proof. All the proof necessary has been given to you. You don't need any more light. You don't need any more light than one man to come and say, God will destroy you if you do not repent. That's all Nineveh had. 
And if you don't turn from your sin, and if you're sitting here today as an unbeliever, and you don't turn to Christ, you will not be able to stand up on judgments today and say, I didn't have enough proof. Because Nineveh will be waiting in the wings to stand up and say, we repented at far less light than you had. You are without excuse. Creation bears testimony to it. The Word of God bears testimony to it. The Son of God has declared it. Paul said, God now demands that all men everywhere repent because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through that man whom He has appointed for that purpose of judging the world. That's Jesus Christ and He has given proof by raising Him from the dead. You've got all the light you need. And the implications of the sign of the prophet Jonah is that there is a judgment to come for wickedness and against sinners. And if you won't repent, you'll stand before God without excuse. And you'll stand before God in your own sin and your own unrighteousness because you're a sinner. And God must punish lawbreakers. He wouldn't be good and He wouldn't be righteous and He wouldn't be just if He did. No, you would never declare an earthly judge to be a good judge that let guilty lawbreakers go free. And God will not do that on Judgment Day. But here is the good news. The good news is that God sent His Son, His name was Jesus, to bear the sins of His people, to bear the sins of all those who will trust in Him, and to bear the sins of any who will return to Him in repentance and faith. His sacrifice on the cross because He was a righteous man, because He knew no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, He was able to bear the sins of all those who will trust Him. He was able to pay the penalty so that on Judgment Day, God can let you go free. He can give you clemency. He can give you forgiveness. He can wipe away your sins and grant you everlasting life and forgiveness. Not because you do good deeds. Not because you do good works. Not because you're a good person. You're not. But because God is a good God who delights in showing mercy to those who will bow their knees before Him. And God would have shown mercy to the Pharisees had they repented and turned and bowed the knee to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. Just like Nicodemus did. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't bow the knee. And because of that, God said, God says, there's a judgment day coming. Now friends, I ask you this. Do you have enough light? We've been given more than enough light to lead any man to repentance. And anybody who persists in their sin and doesn't turn to Christ does so only because their heart is hard. They are a wicked and rebellious people. And because they love their sin and they love their iniquity more than they love the Savior. And I ask you, will you, for a cup of pleasure, drink a sea of wrath on Judgment Day? The men of Nineveh will stand up against anybody in this generation on the Day of Judgment and condemn it if you demand more proof. All the proof necessary has been given. What Jesus said, what Jesus did, it is all recorded for you. You need no more light. You need no more proof. You just need to bow the knee and come to Christ today. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the testimony of Scripture which shows us all that we need to know and all that we need to do. We thank You for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers us today salvation. We pray that You would be pleased this day to encourage our hearts and to draw men and women to Christ. We thank You for the free forgiveness that You offer, that You are a just God, but that You are also merciful long-suffering, and deep and rich in mercy. Lord, we ask that You would extend that mercy to some here this morning. In Jesus' name, for His sake and for His glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.